SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to On the Tape. This is the Monday edition. This is the edition where Guy Adami and I are joined by Liz Young. That's EY from SoFi. She is the head strategist over there at SoFi, that's social finance. And today we're bringing in the big short. We're bringing in Danny Moses. Welcome. Good morning. What up? What up? Demo is here, Dan Nathan. Great to be here. Here's one of the things I think is pretty interesting. You know, we we do a lot of speaking with Liz and Liz speaks to a younger demographic as it relates to an investor. And she often talks about how a lot of those in that cohort have never had their own financial crisis. Well, here they are, Liz. They have a crisis. This is probably one of the first ones that you are living through. We could all agree probably it's in the early stages. Um, Maybe we're in like the second inning of this sort of thing. But just thoughts on kind of your responsibility speaking to a broad audience of investors who these are kind of new concepts. They were probably born into a world where they were feeling the palpitations of the great financial crisis, but maybe it was not something on them and their portfolios. And so we'd love to get your take on that. Danny's going to give us a rundown about where we are. And Guy, who's been talking about something breaking something breaking for a while. Um, we talk about the lag effects of kind of this tightening monetary policy for a while. Well, we finally had something that broke. All right, Liz, talk to us about your very own financial crisis here. A lot of younger investors tried to get their first job in the aftermath of the financial crisis, but didn't necessarily live through the financial crisis. Then they lived through COVID, where the Fed and the government really had a moral obligation and and only one huge problem to solve in the sense that economies were shut down. We all, I think, were swimming in the same direction. Everybody understood that. Now here we are in the midst of possibly the beginning of a crisis where there are competing objectives. And what I mean by that is, yes, there's stress in the financial system. Yes, depositors should be made whole. And, and that's a huge risk out there for just the average American and and all the risks of a bank run that we heard about over the weekend. But the other competing objective is that we still have inflation and we still have an issue in the economy that we were dealing with on the way into this. So 
here we are, not only in our first, if you're a younger investor, our first financial crisis, but now dealing with a time where you've been trained that the Fed saves the day. And I got to tell you, the Fed is in a real tough spot here. And, and I know that there are people on this podcast that will say the Fed put themselves in a tough spot, and we can debate that, of course. But they're in a tough spot because what they have wanted to do all along was not repeat the mistakes of the late 70s. And we are setting up for uh, a time where they may have to repeat the mistakes of the late 70s. And I think that is one of the biggest risks. It's funny. Guy watched The Big Short uh, on Friday for the first time. We'll talk about that later in the week. But I rewatched it uh, on a flight back from New York. And I was lucky or unlucky enough to be in New York this past week while all this was kind of unfolding. And it's really amazing that to 99.5% of people, and when I say people, I mean investors and citizens were unaware 96 hours ago that this was going to be an issue. I've talked about at length ad nauseum that to read your Q's and K's. This is not something that was hidden. This was in plain sight. And Silicon Valley is not and was not the only bank that had this type of portfolio. And let me just say, unlike 2008, this is not a credit issue. This is a duration issue. What do I mean? I mean, banks take deposits, which are liabilities for a bank. They then go do things with them to try to earn interest. Well, some banks were more aggressive than others, and some just had poor risk management. And the poor risk management here was buying long duration assets that are mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, right, and putting them on their balance sheet. And when Silicon Valley specifically, when their client base has been unable to raise capital because it's venture capital companies. They've been draining cash out of not a run on the bank. Let's separate the two things. They obviously had to meet those liabilities, um, which, which came home to roost. So long way of saying they should have addressed this much sooner. The biggest issue that they had, in my opinion, was announcing this you know $20 billion sale with a $1.8 billion charge and not having already raised the capital in a wall crossing, as we say. And to have General Atlantic there, it appeared when they made first made that announcement last week that that was going to be done. That basically self-fulfilled a run on the bank, so to speak. I'm against bailouts in general because of the moral hazard, I believe, and I think things should clear at natural prices. However, in this particular case with businesses, with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees, companies unable to make payroll, assuming that the government is watching these banks after everything that happened 13, 14, 15 years ago, this is one of those things where they don't deserve that. They don't deserve to miss payroll because you're talking about people that don't have $250,000 in the bank that are employees of these companies. So at the end of the day, the White House did the right thing for now. It still remains to be seen now, the health of the banks. And the last comment I'll make here is that the one thing you need to understand is the cost of capital is going up for everything now because the banks are the ones that are going to have to absorb this. And so if you think about lines of credit, think about private equity, how they get lines of credit, multi-strat hedge funds. So just incorporate all that and QT, is mortgage-backed securities and treasury. So that's over now. And so you're seeing rates come in. So I could say a lot more, but you know, I just think that's kind of a summary here of kind of where we are. And there's a lot of more capital that needs to be raised in the banking system. So for those who think that all this was, was a bailout of the rich, uh, elite uh, technology, Silicon Valley, people that drive their Teslas. And if this happened in somewhere in the Midwest, we wouldn't be talking about it. That's just patently false. I mean, although those people run these companies and they're the founders and the owners of a lot of these startups, it's the people that work for them, to Danny's point, that we're going to get eviscerated in this entire thing. So in that regard, the government did what it needed to do. But 
You know, Dan, I always ask you what what's the dual mandate of the Federal Reserve? Maybe you can sort of enlighten me because there are a few. I mean, there's a dual, but there are a few. Since the financial crisis guy, I think you say to keep the S&P and the NASDAQ bid up here, right? By the way, that is in fact the dual mandate. But the one that you'll read about in your textbooks if you're in school right now is that whole stable prices and full employment. Well, as for stable prices, and I put this out on the Twitter earlier today, the U.S. bond market, this is the United States, by the way. The last I looked, it's still the largest economy in the history of mankind. The U.S. Treasury market, the bond market, is trading akin to a $135 million biotech company with one product in the pipeline. It's an absolute farce what's going on with interest rates. And I got to tell you, EY from SoFi, you have been saying for quite some time, and Danny says this as well. It's not so much the inversion you have to worry about. It's when it starts going uninverted is when things really fall to shit. And look at two's tens. I mean, we went out to 110 basis points. And I don't know where it is right now. It's about 65, 70 basis points. I mean, that's an astronomical move in a very short period of time. And that does not augur particularly well for risk assets. One of the things I would say about inversion and then re-steepening is the inversion is is the signal, right? The fire alarm goes off in the building. Everybody's looking around. Is it real? Is it not? Are we worried? And then you start leaving. Somebody smells smoke and it starts to re-steepen. The re-steepening is what happens usually because people start expecting the Fed to cut rates. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If we were expecting the Fed to cut rates because we had gotten a handle on inflation and we were trying to go gravitate back towards neutral, that would be a different story. That is absolutely not what's happening here. You're seeing rates come down across the curve. It's just that the short end is falling much harder than the long end. So we went through this, Guy, you have been calling this for weeks. We went through this a while ago that if the long end is coming down, it's because people are afraid. It's not coming down because suddenly inflation has come down. It's coming down because people were afraid. So that's not a good reason. Now the short end is coming down because we're pricing in the idea that the Fed is going to have to come in and save this, at least pause, if not cut, by the end of the year, much sooner than we originally expected. I will tell you, even if CPI comes in at 6% tomorrow, which is where expectations are, 6% is far from where we need to be. And if we start cutting rates with CPI that high before it's taken care of, you run into this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy later on, it builds on itself, we're going to have some sort of recession that's actually harder to solve down the road because then inflation is entrenched. So all of this what if scenario that we've been talking about, let's hope that doesn't happen. If we don't get a handle on CPI on inflation before some of this occurs, it will become entrenched, expectations go up, and all we're doing is kicking the problem down the road. Well, we know that because that's exactly what we've done at every instance over at least the last 20 or so years as it relates to these sorts of kind of financial issues and what the tools the Fed have to do that. I think the point that Danny made is a really important one. One of the big themes of the markets in 2022, both public and private, was the cost of capital going up, right? And that was one of the issues why we kind of saw what happened at Silicon Valley Bank because it was very cute to their customer base, right? So now, if you think about this, whether you want to call this a bailout or not, it most certainly is. The feds are going to go out of their way for political reasons to try to argue that this is not going to be taxpayer money. Of course it is, especially the broader that this thing gets, okay? So now you think about this, and, and we're going to bring this back to the market, this conversation here, because I don't know about you guys, and to your point, Danny, about all of these utilities that happen, that go on at banks, that they have the ability to charge for if there is going to be 
heightened regulation on the banking system right now that is going to be passed through to consumers. Did you see Bank America down 7% on the opening today? Wells Fargo, Citibank were down 5 6%. The stocks are rallying a little bit off their lows, but here's one. You just got to keep on your radar here because it's the largest custodian, right, of investment assets in the country and it's Charles Schwab, okay? And I'm not bringing this up right here to cause any sort of concern and Danny, I know that you and I were talking about this a little bit here, but this stock was down, what, 20% at its lows today. It started the month at $80, and it traded as low this morning as $45. And I have a friend of mine who sent a letter out. He runs an investment advisory business where his assets are custodied at Schwab. And he sent a letter about to his investors, basically drawing the difference between bank deposits, right, and investment deposits and the, w- or the way that they're segregated. Danny, I really would love for you to explain this because somebody is hitting the panic button on Charles Schwab right now, and there must be some sort of like kind of misnomer about that segregation because um, they're shooting first, asking questions later. If David Solomon wasn't DJing somewhere or skiing or playing golf somewhere over the weekend. He should have been huddling up with his bankers potentially to take a look at acquiring Schwab. And I mean that seriously in the sense of that's a great franchise to own. Here's the problem. They have a $20 billion hole potentially if you make it relative to what they have held to maturity versus what you've seen happen at Silicon Valley Bank and some of the others, FRC as well. So they know they have to raise money. I'm a Schwab customer, right? And they were sending out emails all weekend. And if you look within Schwab, your securities are protected by the SIPC, right? Very different than the FDIC. And Schwab wanted to make that clear. However, to your point, Dan, it takes me one click of the button to look and see where my cash is. You know, you trade in a day, it settles somewhere and you click on it and you say your cash balance. I'm looking at it. I looked at it this morning. Bank sweep deposits, blah, 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 at Charles Schwab and company. So I will move those out of the bank, right? And buy treasuries or something else with it. Because as long as it's not, quote, in cash. Now, I don't know all all the specifics, but it can self-fulfill basically a run. So Schwab knows they're going to have to raise capital to stop people from doing that and or pulling their accounts from there. So I believe that obviously we're going to see a large capital raise there. That's the deal with Schwab. And and you see obviously how volatile it is this morning. They're going to have to come out and do something. I believe they will announce some, some type of capital raise. And I'm not saying that they need to be rescued yet, Dan, but Goldman would have been the perfect opportunity to kind of fix that consumer banking business thing that they have going on and all that stuff, in my opinion, would be right possibly to buy them here. So I'm not looking to pick on any one particular bank, but since we're here, it's first of all, it's not coincidence. And I've said this a thousand effing times. It's not coincidence that so many of these stocks, so many of these stocks topped out in the fall of 2021, specifically November, if you want to get down to brass tacks. But let's play the bank game today, shall we? First Republic FRC was a $220 stock in October of 2021. It's a $22 stock today. They basically took a freaking zero away. I mean, this is a it's a 70% move we're seeing in one day in another bank that, you know, people will say First Republic is fine. Oh, really? To Danny's point, to Liz's point, and to your point, the market is selling first asking questions later. And it's it's problematic. And Liz made the point, she's, and we've all sort of made this point in different ways. When something breaks and it takes the Fed out of the game for the wrong reasons, and if these inflation numbers come in hot or even in line, I'll say it, we're screwed. And you know what? Nobody else wants to say it. I'll freaking say it. I'm not, I'm not talking about you three. I'm just talking about people in general. And that's the problem. People say, oh, you can, the Fed's got bullshit. I mean, they're the ones that created this problem. 
They're the ones that are trying to fix this problem, and they're just going to create a bigger problem going forward. This is going to bring the spotlight back to the banks in general. And keep in mind, yes, there's treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. There's also CNI loans. There's also commercial real estate loans. Every bank has their own kind of thing here. So make no mistake about it. There are other problem credits sitting at the banks, right? To the extent that it makes them go raise capital, I'm not sure, but you will see a highlight of this. And there is other things happening other than QT, right? I mean, we just talked about cost of capital going up or watching office properties get foreclosed upon. We're seeing things happening. So let's not forget the real economic downturn, the impact that it has on the normal course of a financial institution. And I guess, listen, you know, Guy, you've said this again and again, you know, you think that consumer confidence is really an overlay of the S&P 500 and, you know, the S&P 500, which was up nearly 10% on the year after, you know, a pretty brutal 2022. I think a lot of people were feeling a bit of a sigh of relief. And, you know, I mean, think about this. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had prominent economists and strategists and pundits talking about soft to no landings. I mean, think about that, Liz, right? And so when we talk about where we are right now, I mean, I got to tell you people, and we've gone over this again and again on this podcast, is when you think about the last few stock market crashes that we've had. We had 35% in 2020, but we were making new highs within six months, right? Then you go back to, you know, there was a couple maybe down years, like 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 small, you know, um, 2018 when, when the stock market fell 20% out of bed in Q4 when the, when the last time the Fed was actually in a meaningful rate hiking cycle. But prior to that, you know, we only had 2008 during the financial crisis where the S&P 500 closed down. I mean, people have forgotten what protracted bear markets have been or what they can be. And we've been kind of reminding people that we did not think we're out of a bear market here. We thought what we saw in January and February was really no different than what we had seen in October, what we had seen in June, what we had seen in March and April of 2022. Well, here you are. And you know, to me, I just kind of feel like when we think about stocks, Liz, you've been really cautious here. You've been talking about being defensive, selling rips. It really feels a bit early right now. Now, especially when you had this sort of opening like we had down and then they kind of rally them to unchanged. I feel like every rally is a selling opportunity right now because we will not have clarity. There will be many more failures. There will be many more backstops. And that maybe you could say it's scar tissue for us oldies here because going back to kind of 08, and that's maybe one reason why we were still a bit cautious in mid-late 2020 after it looked like you know every other BTFD kid out there was like, this is easy, just YOLO, throw a dart at your fact set machine and own stocks. But I feel like we are reverting back to the financial crisis playbook or the post.com protracted bear market. We haven't even had the recession yet. And that's one of the concerns that I would have is that the average stock market decline in recessions in the last 60 years has been about 35%. And if you want to talk about 2022 being down the S&P, I don't know, 27% or 30% at its lows. It didn't stay there very long. I just don't think we've achieved that yet. Let's put some numbers on that. So the the average recession decline, I think, is actually closer to 44%, but it's at least beyond 30%. 30% down from the peak in early 2022 would be an S&P at 33.57. Okay. I, here's two things I'm not going to do. I'm not going to take a victory lap right now, and I'm also not going to call a bottom or say what level I think we're going to get down to because I have absolutely no idea. But just to wrap some numbers around that on averages, just to get down 30% from the peak is 33.57. And 
we, you know, all of us have gotten attacked since the beginning of the year. You guys missed this whole rally where, you know, you're wrong. You've been wrong since January 1st. Well, guess what? We just gave back most of the rally, if not the whole thing. So I, I'm not ever trying to catch that. The other thing I'll say, and I made this point a couple weeks ago, I kept finding it so hard to believe. And I've been very honest about the fact that I felt beaten down by the rally. There were days that I questioned if I missed something. I told everybody I went to my mentors even and was like, what am I doing wrong? I stuck to my guns and said, I still cannot convince myself to get bullish because I cannot imagine a world where we see a headline six to 12 months from now that says Fed raised rates the fastest they have in 40 years, 500 basis points, nothing broke, everything's fine. And you know what? Turns out that's not actually going to happen because now we have these headlines. This is the beginning of probably more. I won't say that we're going to see a ton of failures. I don't know the answer to that. I still think there's a credit event out there. I do not think this was a credit event. I think there's a credit event out there. It could take a while for that to occur, but I still think that there's something else that's going to break. The, the last thing I'll say on this is that consumers are fickle. There is no such thing as an expansion in the U.S. economy without the consumer, and consumers are fickle. The, the term bank run, whether it happened or not broadly, terrifies people. And as soon as people are terrified, whether that's because they think they're going to lose their job or because they think that suddenly there's some sort of collapse in the financial system, I can guarantee you that they're going to be careful about where they're spending their money. And that changes on a dime. So do not underestimate the fickleness of the consumer and the speed at which it can change. Everybody that hung their hat on the consumer being strong and spending us through this, I bet that changed very much over the weekend. Yeah, this is kind of a slow moving train wreck, so to speak. And I hate to use that analogy since we've seen a lot of those over the last several weeks. But let's look back. Blackstone and Starwood private equity real estate funds were gated uh, last fall. This has already started beginning. So that was kind of the first sign. The point you guys just made, and we talked about this last week on the tape about the inversion or the steepening that might occur. We even used the example that could go to 50 or 60 basis points quickly, but that wouldn't be a good sign because you are now looking at a situation where the lag effect of all these rate hikes, which have been occurring, are starting to work their way into the system. And so it's one thing to stop raising. And now, as I sit here, I think we're zero chance of 50 basis points in a couple of weeks, 60% chance of 25 and 40% chance of nothing, obviously. But we're still at a very high level and we're going to stay there. And to Liz's point, you can't cut. Depend, even if that CPI number has a five handle on it, you can't cut because it's, you'll exacerbate inflation here. So what do we do from here? I think we are now looking, because I mentioned before that the banks will have to curtail lending or raise the cost of capital. You are self-fulfilling stagflation here, coming really bringing it forward, so to speak. And how do you adjust to that? How, none of that is priced into the market. So yes, you had this belief in a soft land. You had the belief that the Fed could somehow achieve something. And yes, something came out of left field to most people. Something came out of left field, but it happened. And it just shows you front and center how trapped we are, how the Fed cannot take liquidity out of the system for the fear of what it's going to do. And so if this cycle is allowed to happen, and if they if they protract it over a period of time, it's going to be feel bad for three to four years. Let these things naturally clear in a way, and this is tough to do, that protects the U.S. consumer, when I say consumer, deposit or to bank to give them confidence because this thing can really feed on itself. So I'm still sticking to fundamentals here. You know, I still think the market's expensive. I know a lot of people caved. I feel like now it's right in front of us and it's actually much easier to now kind of pick apart, in my opinion. For all you folks out there that bow at the altar of the Federal Reserve, find another effing altar, number one. And, you know, just rethink the whole thing. As smart as those cats are, 
They're wonks. They're academics. They have no friggin' idea what they're doing. And I'm saying that not tongue in cheek. I'm happy to be right. And people say, well, wait a second. If you can do it, guess what? I would have done it a lot effing better, number one. Number two, the market's making the same mistakes over and over again. I'm sitting here looking at the screens, the facts that machines, Apple's actually higher on the day. So until that sort of breaks, we haven't seen anything yet, in my opinion. And all roads lead to what, Danny Moses? Just help me out here. I forgot the word. Gold. Yes, gold. That's correct. And central banks, I tell you what, as wacky as all those assholes have been now for years, they got something right because they've all been buying gold hand over fist for the last 16, 18 months. China just bought another tranche of gold in January. So they're basically hedging against their stupidity, which is fascinating to me. And gold is up big today. And I will tell you, everybody, Dan, might be bullish gold. Nobody's long gold. And that's not nuance. That's important because there's going to be a day where it's up and then it's going to feed upon itself. And that's, I happen to think, if you want to know what the next chapter is, it's going to, it's going to be spelled G-O-L-D, Dan, Nathan. You know, and interestingly, you mentioned Apple. Microsoft's also up, uh, you know, more than 1%. So you're seeing a flight to quality of some of these companies that are huge cash flow generators, obviously have huge, uh, you know, monopolies. They have the balance sheet, which are, you know, fortress uh, or thought to be fortress, you know, and, and again, those will be the kind of last battles fought. I mean, you're just definitely going to want to kind of be moving towards areas. I mean, money's coming out of financials or financially oriented sort of products. And we have a group chat, we're going over some of these things over the weekend. And, and this is not just to kind of harp on Tesla. But if you think about where the kind of epicenter of the first battle of this war, and it will be a war people for the next couple of years, I think in, in the kind of financial market, here and some of these obviously heavily regulated uh, financial institutions. But think about just kind of the VC-centric nature of what was being bailed out. And I've talked to, I want to say dozens of VCs or VC-backed operators over the last few days. Danny, I know you have too, and I'm sure Guy um, and Liz have, and we're very sympathetic to a lot of these things. Let me tell you what this moment brings. It brings a level of humility back into markets. And we know this because I was born in the hedge fund business in the late 90s. And as Danny and Guy were in and around those businesses and the hubris that existed in the mid 2000s in the lead up to the financial crisis. And these are by our peers. It could have been by us also, like for all, you know, just kind of keeping it real right here. And let me tell you, the financial crisis was a comeuppance for that business in general. When you think about it, and there's a whole host of reasons that you can go back and look at, look at how the fee structures changed first and foremost, okay? Like the rich got richer in that business, no doubt about it. The mega funds, you know, went from being, you know, 10 billion to being like 50 billion or that sort of thing. But it really extinguished a lot of bankers. It extinguished a lot of banks for that matter, a lot of private pools of capital and the like. And I think you're probably going to see that in the VC community. You're going to see the big get bigger. You're going to see them get a whole heck of a lot more diversified, but you're going to see them be a lot more careful about valuations that they're paying, right? Um, the sort of capital that's moving around. And then you're also to see probably far less Tesla's bought in, in California. I mean, I'm just like, like things like that. I just think people are going to be a lot more careful about over the next year or so. And that's kind of to Liz's point here. So there's definitely going to be a bit of a sea change here. I do wonder though that, you know, and, and I'd love to talk about this a little bit. We had a podcast, um, Danny, I think you kind of introduced this idea, the single point of failure. We're seeing it again and again in lots of parts of our society, our economy. When you think of the single point of failure that such a disproportionate amount of VC assets, okay, and then also venture back companies, their payroll, their CapEx, I mean, the list goes on and on, at one bank, 
the 16th largest bank, and they had multiple ties to this bank, reasons for them to keep their money. It wasn't until there was a Twitter panic about their money being in this bank that they all took it out at the same time. And I'm just curious, Danny, thoughts on that? Because we never had that situation, I don't think, during the financial crisis. Yeah, we like named a handful of banks as, as, as too big to fail, that sort of thing. But this one seemed to be like a pressure point that was just an accident waiting to happen. As I'm sitting here, I'm looking not just at First Republic, I'm looking at Western Alliance Bank, I'm looking at Key Bank, Comerica, and then I'm looking at the, at the auto lenders. I'm looking at Ally and Credit Acceptance Corp. And I want people to understand how financialized this economy is. These banks give credit lines to these companies, right, to go out and, and make auto loans, right? So when you, I mentioned before, now it's all starting to kind of blend together. People have to start start to connect the dots. Um, Dan, to answer your question, what was really fascinating back in the day in the Lehman and the Bear Stearns and some of my closest friends worked at those firms. And as it was literally unraveling or in the weeks leading up to it, we would get on the phone with them and plead with them. Hey, I know you guys love the company that you work at. They didn't see it. They were in the culture of the firm itself and believed that they were not that they were smarter, but as a collective that they would, quote, be fine. And that was the problem with the regulators not understanding the products. Right. And also and the employees believing their leaders like Dick Fold, Joe Gregory and all these other people that were you know at these places. And so there's a willful ignorance that kind of exists. As I mentioned before, this is pretty simple to understand. This is a duration mismatch, bad risk management, to your point, Dan. And I think if you're a Silicon Valley bank depositor and you were a venture capitalist, and, and we know a lot of them, the last thing that you want to have to worry about is, is your money safe where you're banking? You were told this, these guys are the best. You were told that Silicon Valley will get you your line of credit. They'll help you raise capital. All this stuff. You shouldn't have to worry. It's hard enough to go run a company, right? So I guess, Dan, no one had the time or even thought. And I don't blame them. And I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say I wouldn't have been in the same position to do that. Now, I do know for a fact there were several companies that had money at Silicon Valley that when they put out their 10K in February, they looked at it, they were alerted to it, and they moved their money out. There were some people that actually did do that. Now, I know that Andreessen Horowitz is the papa bear for you know a lot of the stuff, and they're looking over their portfolio companies. They obviously are very nervous or were very nervous over the, you know, over the weekend and making sure that their portfolio companies could make payroll. It appears like they were caught off guard. And so, again, not that I'd be shocked. We, we've seen what's, what's happened in crypto world, <laughs> some of these largest private equity funds not understanding it. And I'll just end with this, Dan. To, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but I think there's still a lot of willful ignorance going on in the system today. Don't be scared to open up and look. And now one other thing to Guy's point, this is Bernanke, by the way, and he I have not heard his name once during all of this. He was the one that did all of this. And so you want to blame a particular person, it's the Bernanke, as we used to call him, right? Yeah, he's where selling he books and he's working at Citadel and he's, that's a whole nother podcast for another time. I think my feelings on him are, are pretty well known and I'm sure I will amplify them at a certain point. But you just mentioned and I'm paraphrasing, but how could you have seen this coming? Well, I don't know, but Jim Chano saw it coming. Vincent Daniel saw it coming. Porter Collins saw it coming. I mean, they just happened to do the work. So instead of trusting management and everything's going to be fine because the stress tests suggest they will be fine, maybe we should be a bit more rigorous. Instead of listening to some of the cheerleaders out there, maybe we should be listening to people that actually have done the work historically and understand what the F is going on.
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hey, so Liz, you're a sector gal. You like value. There's going to be a lot of value that presents itself in the stock market. Danny, as you know, on our podcast is always saying that, that you've been saying this, Danny, for over a year, even as the market was upper left, bottom right during 2022, that it really has become a stock picker's market, especially for those people who have longer term time horizons, who are doing the work and have the ability to kind of average into a position. And, you know, again, just to put not too fine a point on this, I mean, listen, until some of these now it, it seems to be the contagion spreading to brokers, at least in the public stock market, right? So we've already talked about all these regional banks that are getting absolutely destroyed. It's going to take a while to work themselves out. There will be some unusual values there. This is no time to be a hero in any of these, in in my opinion, because the lower they go is the longer they're going to take to recover. And until they are healthy again, until the financial sector is healthy again, we might be at a 101 fever on the way to 106. You know know what I'm saying? And who knows how long that takes and who knows how long it will take to break. Are there some sectors that you want to go to first, X financials that you think make sense for people with a longer term time horizon that they can kind of leg into? First of all, if you look at what happens around inversions and afterwards, you want things like utilities, right? If we're worried about the consumer, you don't want discretionary and you don't really even want staples, especially because staples are already overvalued. So the defensive parts of the market remain utilities and probably healthcare, particularly in the large cap space healthcare. Here's the only thing I would say if I want to try to put a positive bow on this, I had been constructive on financials until until last week. I would take the gifts if there are gifts in the market. Uh, let's say we get little rallies off of this, whatever we're going to call it, this the saving of, of depositors. Let's say we get a rally off a cooler CPI tomorrow. That's a gift. And you take that to trim your exposure in some of these spots that might be hit the hardest. After 2008, 2009, once things had calmed down, financials did pop quite a bit afterwards. And mid-cap stocks actually were the best performer coming out of that because there were a lot of regional banks in mid-cap stocks. So when you look at what's going to happen, if you are a long-term investor, this is the beginning, I think, of a drawdown. And this is the beginning of where you might see 
good entry points, but we are not there yet. And the other thing that I would say is the reason I had been constructive on financials, and, and I will be very specific about when I get constructive on them again, I'm not there today. The reason I had been constructive is because of the statement that I've made a couple times over the last few weeks. What takes you to the peak in the market is not what brings you back out of the trough. So on the other side of this, I do still think that value does rule the roost. That doesn't mean that tech is going to be negative, but I do still think that it is what leads us out on the other side. The last thing I'll say is uh, I happen to be on CNBC on Halftime Report on Friday. So the FDIC shut down Silicon Valley Bank at about 1140. We went live at noon and my final trade that day was gold. So I'm with you guys on that. That's what I'm talking about, EY. That's what I'm freaking talking about. And I'm with you. If you look today, Eli Lilly, we talked about sort of 310 or so being a level. That's up, I think, $13 today. I think people will once again find relative safety in big cap pharma. You see what's going on. Pfizer obviously announced a big deal earlier today. They're spending however many billion dollars to combat cancer was their spin on this. Good for them. But I think you're going to continue to see movement in big cap pharma. Energy under pressure today, probably to a certain extent, understandably so. But I think the market will gravitate towards energy again this year. And, and you know, if you think Liz made the point, any rallies you see, again, this is just my opinion, are an absolute gift. And there's so much work yet to be done. And God forbid these inflation numbers come in anywhere close to being deemed hot. And the problem that I know we face will be magnified tenfold. Danny, real quickly, because it was the summer of 2021 and you started talking about stagflation, I think before anybody that that I followed, that I watched on financial TV, that I spoke to. And so you kind of alluded to this before, you know, again, to, to what Guy just said is like, if these CPI readings um, remain hot, I mean, one of the things that we're definitely going to see is kind of downward pressure on on wage growth. With a, that was the story, I think, of the jobs number ticking up a little bit, uh, unemployment rate to 3.6%. But what would it mean for risk assets, a, a true stagflationary environment, something that we have not seen in a very long time? Because this brings us back to valuations in the stock market. We really haven't talked about it. That was kind of one of the pillars of our kind of bear case in a way. We talk about Butters and the work that he does at Earnings Insight on their blog at FactSet. And, and he tracks every week where the S&P forward and trailing earnings multiple is relative to the five and 10 year average. And we're just not that far away from either one of them, right? So what is a stagflation? environment mean for stock valuations? Because to me, it just seems like that's where the major disconnect. And I think all of us would become a lot more constructive. As you said, you didn't want to guess where the stock market might bottom out. And guy, you've talked about in the past where that Fed put is, right? Given the dual mandate, the dual dual mandate of the of the Federal Reserve to keep the S&P and the NASDAQ bid. We all agree it's much lower. We're looking at an S&P that's 38.50 and it's still trading, what, like 17, 18 times. Danny, that doesn't make sense in the, in the economic environment that you think we're going to be in for the balance of this year. Yeah. So we're already seeing the slowdown happen in the goods sector where I underestimated, I think, is the services sector and people's willingness to spend. And I really think it was behavioral finance coming out of COVID. People locked up for a long time, spending on experiences, hotels, travel, all that stuff did start to occur. The downside of that is that I think savings have started to be depleted. And obviously the balances that people are carrying, uh, whatever variable that they have is obviously going to become much more expensive. So I think it becomes self-fulfilling that we will see the slowdown. Dan, it always starts with the consumer. It ends with the consumer. And so I think there's been elements of this kind of rolling recession. They call it a rich session, kind of rolling stagflation. And my point is that people were waiting for the sign, which is today. Okay, 
separate from everything else that has occurred that we just talked about in the underbelly of the financial system. When the Fed finally starts raising rates, that's the signal too. That's green shoots. That's the time. And that will last, we talked about last week, for an hour, a day, maybe a week. Because the reality, Dan, that you just made about what will earnings be going forward from this occurrence of what has happened and the cost of capital going higher, the math works that earnings now, if anything, get much more cemented that they're actually going to go lower because the economic slowdown will self-fulfill because the cost of capital is going to, no one cares about that today. No, I get it. People that want to be bullish, great. Fed's going to stop. It's great. So long-winded way of answering you, Dan, is that I think now everything's kind of starting to line up. I mentioned last week on market call, kind of the puzzle kind of all coming together. I think it just got pulled forward and became clearer given what we're facing. So anytime you have scrutiny, on the one thing that drives this economy, and that's the banking system and all the financial products out there. It's never a good thing from a regulatory perspective. And so I, I'm as bearish as I was, if not more so, I will respect the rate rally I, in terms of what people believe it means to stock market, because I'm not gonna give anyone credit for doing everything I just talked about or assuming the worst because people like to assume the best. That was a great little wrap of, of the weekend and kind of kind of what we've been seeing into this event and what we might see out of it. And we got a lot of stuff coming at you this week. Danny, you're going to be back with Guy tomorrow on the market call. We're going to have Carter Braxton. We're doing lots of different charts on market call. That is 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find it at MRKT call and on our risk reversal media YouTube page. And we'll tweet those links out. So check that out. Liz will be back with us on market call on Thursday at 1 1 p.m. Eastern. We're also going to have a special market call on Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern with Jim Chanos, the aforementioned Jim Chanos. And we're going to do a little bit of a retrospective on what we think is probably a really pivotal week for the markets. And the last thing I want to say is that last week we had a conversation with Terry Duffy, the CEO, chairman of CME Group. He had written an op-ed the week before in the FT talking about risk management is the alpha for a time of uncertainty. And he literally laid out to a T the sorts of interest rate products that could hedge out the sort of risk that SVB should have been doing on their books. And he laid it out and they weren't doing it. It was almost financial malpractice. You got to listen to that interview with Terry, Guy, Danny, and myself because it was prescient, as Guy Adami would say. Not shocking to anybody. It just was released that Goldman Sachs was the institution that actually bought those securities from Civ B that crystallized the $2 billion loss. Okay. That will not go over well <laughs> in the press considering they were the underwriter for the deal and going to try to raise them equity. So they bought the portfolio and then goes to, anyway, I won't go into it. It's just coming out now. But again, I think this thing has a long way to play out as much. And let me just say one thing more before we actually close. It's relatively easy for Dan, Danny, or G Swizz here to come and talk about things so openly and point out some of the negative things that can go wrong because we don't sit in certain seats. It's much different when somebody like EY from SoFi who has, as Danny said, you know, you have career risk when you make some of the calls that a Mike Wilson makes and some of the calls that Elizabeth's been making. And by the way, correctly, not just for the sake of making them. So I can't tell you how much I've had an enormous amount of respect for you, obviously. And I'm, I'm not just saying this. My respect for you continues to grow each day because the calls you make 
in the wake and in the midst of some of the things that have gone on are not easy to do. So EY, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. You know, there's a lot of people who are very hyperbolic on the Twitter over the weekend. You saw them. We don't really need to name names. And, you know, it's interesting. One of them in particular, well, we'll just say it is Bill Ackman of Pershing Square. You know, when he went on CNBC on March 18th of 2020, and he basically was like, you know, I don't know what the hell he was doing. He's crying. He was talking about hell's coming and this and that, whatever. And then it's revealed that he had the single biggest trade on that would benefit from absolute financial and economic mayhem. And he like turned a, what, a half a billion trade into like 20 plus billion profit or something like that. I mean, what we're doing here is we are not talking our books. When we're talking about things that we're involved in, let me tell you people, nothing that we do or say is going to move any market or anything like that. We're really kind of trying to just break down our experience, you know, trading through some financial crisis from economic crises, some really uncertain uh, market times and just kind of telling it like the way we see it, play by play, that sort of thing. So again, um, appreciate you, Liz, Danny. It's really been pretty fascinating. We started this podcast in January of 2020 and just calling the shots as we've seen them one by one. It was the speculation in crypto, in NFTs, in SPACs, the, um, the whole idea of what a really tight labor market for a whole host of different reasons related to the pandemic, related to supply chain issues, related to automation, related to all these sorts of things and then really kind of working into just how do you fix a monetary policy gone bad coupled with a fiscal you know kind of policy in relation to a black swan event and what it will mean to finally acknowledge the fact that inflationary pressures that we have not seen in 40 years are really right at our doorstep i think guy and danny you guys have been all over that but the last piece of this puzzle has been how do you kind of come off of this and why have we said over and over again, why have we referred to Q4 of 2018, right? The last time the Fed was raising interest rates and the stock market's reaction, because we really thought it was a fairly good analog and the pace in which they've raised right now, you guys have been saying it and you haven't been doing it to be dramatic. Something's gonna break. Well, something broke here. And, and again, people, these are things that don't get fixed with the first headline, the first program that the Fed, the Treasury, the FDIC put in place here. So I'm just saying strap it in here because this is going to be something that is likely to take more time than you want it to take and that you think it's going to take. So Liz's advice of being prudent, you know what I mean, and thinking long term and not trying to be a hero makes a lot of sense. So thanks for being with us. We got a lot of stuff this week. So check us back out. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.